We're in John chapter 3. John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. We're going to read that passage in just a minute. Actually, Megan is going to read it for us. But uh, if you're a hockey fan, you notice that the Canucks won their first game, which is a miracle. If you watch sports, you know that the two intermissions of a hockey game, or if you're watching football, that halftime, that those intermission moments are moments when some of the greatest decisions are actually made. Those, those intermissions or the halftime, they're moments to rethink the strategy, to reposition players. Maybe you had a family meeting this week and, uh, you know, your family just took a time out and you took time to look at relationships in the family, the way that you're working together or aren't working together. You realized it was time to take another look at how you live family. Or maybe you're a part of a business and, and things were getting kind of clouded and you realized, you know, as colleagues that you needed to stop and look at the strategy again. Maybe you come into the service today thinking about your own life or thinking about people that are, are around you. And you're looking at your schooling, at your education or your profession, your business, your family, your relationships. And this worship service can actually be one of those intermission moments. One of those moments when you stop and you ponder which decisions you might need to make to live differently as you move forward. As we hear the scripture read today in just a few minutes, I I hope that you ask yourselves the question, how would today's passage inform or guide the decisions that I need to make today? The context for today's passage is is the following. In John chapter 1, John chapter 1, John the Baptist, he sees Jesus pass by. He looks at Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God. In essence, there's the Messiah. And two of his disciples, two men that have been following him, decide to follow Jesus. Then at the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus and his disciples, they find themselves at a wedding in Cana. There are water jars there used for purification rites, and Jesus transforms that water into wine. And the message for the disciples is, hey, The religious system that you're a part of has run dry. There's a need for new wine, for new life. It's Passover time in the latter part of chapter 2. And Jesus goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. But when he's in Jerusalem, he actually cleanses the temple. It's the center of Jewish religious life. And what he says through that act and through what he says to the religious leaders, he says, hey, the temple will be replaced. In fact, I will become the meeting place between God and humanity. At that same Passover, uh, a religious leader comes to visit Jesus in the night. His name is Nicodemus. He's a Pharisee. We would call him a good man. He's a religious explorer. He, he wants to know how to enter the kingdom of God. He knows the scriptures. He's religious, but he's not sure how to enter the kingdom. And Jesus, in essence, says what Pastor Willie said last week, that Jesus did not come to make the good better. He came to make the dead live. People need to be born of the Spirit. Well, in chapter 4, Jesus will encounter a Samaritan woman at a well. A woman, 
a Samaritan, a person from another ethnicity. She practices another religion, and they'll have a fascinating conversation. We'll look at that next week. Between Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman, there's a bit of an intermission. The disciples of Jesus and John and his disciples, they're both baptizing in proximity to one another. And a conversation ensues. In fact, there's a bit of a crisis. So what happens? Megan, come read the the passage for us. John chapter 3, 22 to 36. And just a note, um, the text will say that uh, this happens before John's arrest. So in John 1 through 3, you actually have what you don't have in the other Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. If you read those Gospels, the ministry of Jesus starts, you know, in Galilee, following the arrest of John the Baptist. So these are some special chapters, and Megan will read John 3, 22 to 36. Go ahead, Megan. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside and remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon and Salem, because their water was plentiful there. And people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony set his seal to this, that God is true, for he whom God has sent utters the word of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure." The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Thank you, Megan. Thanks for reading the text. Thank you, Brad. So that's today's text. And as we read that text... You know, do you find yourself asking the question, how might what I have just heard here or read here, how might it influence, inform, guide real decisions that I need to make right now in my life? After baptizing Jesus in chapter 1, John, he's, he continues to baptize at Anon, it says, near Salim. So Anon means springs. There was a lot of water there. And John's ma- message was crystal clear. Uh, repent, turn from your sin, and turn to God. Prepare your heart for the coming of the kingdom, the coming of the Messiah. At the same time that John is preaching that message, Jesus' disciples are baptizing. They're also in the Judean countryside. John is near a place called Salim. It means peace. 
And so near that place called peace, a dispute arises. There's a conversation between John's disciples and a certain Jew. The dispute is about purification. What actually makes a person clean? Is it the baptism of John? Is it the baptism of Jesus? Does, does Jesus' baptize, baptism supersede John's? It's interesting that there's this concern you know, around the world. There was a concern at that time. It's a concern to this day. What actually makes a pure person pure? If you look at religions like Hinduism, the major world religions, Hinduism, uh, Buddhism, Sikhism, Islam, they're all concerned with cleansing. They have purification rituals. During Jesus' time, the Greeks, before they would approach a god, they would wash themselves. In fact, in Israel, there were some people that were baptizing themselves daily in cold water in order to stay pure. The colder, the better. I remember baptizing a person, you know, on a very cold day. The water was really cold. Put him down into the water. When he came up, he swore. Well, doesn't water baptism purify a person? Why would he say those things? He needed to learn to speak a new language in Portuguese. We practice water baptism at Willington. In fact, this weekend, some people will get baptized. Water baptism, it symbolizes spiritual regeneration, spiritual rebirth. And so when we place our faith in Jesus, we're reborn. We receive the Holy Spirit. And then as we walk with Jesus, the Holy Spirit purifies us, transforms us into the image of Jesus. John chapter 4, verse 1. Now... When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, you see, the disciples of Jesus, they're actually continuing the baptism of John. And so from the perspective of the disciples of John the Baptist, Jesus' disciples are taking the ministry away from John the Baptist. You can sense the jealousy, the resentment, the bitterness in their words. John, you baptized Jesus. You actually authorized him with your own witness. And now he's taking your ministry. Everyone is going to Jesus and his disciples. It's during that moment of revival when both Jesus and John have vibrant ministries that something lifts its ugly head. It's a divisive, competitive spirit. Why? Well, in the intermission moment, John's disciples, they take their their eyes off of God's calling on their leader, John the Baptist. They take their eyes off of the mission that God actually has for them and John the Baptist. And they begin to compare themselves to Jesus and his disciples. Their ministry is growing more than theirs. So easy to fall into comparison, right? Right? Parents will compare their children with the children of others. Children will compare themselves with other children in school based on things like appearance and grades, on artistic ability, athletic ability, comparison. We all fall into it. Different generations will make comparisons. My grandfather, he escaped another country during a time of revolution, came to Canada landed in the prairies during the Great Depression. Hard life. My parents, they grew up during the Great Depression. 
Uh, Judy and I were watching on, on YouTube uh, an interesting uh, piece where there's a 93-year-old woman who teaches recipes from the Great Depression. It's amazing what you can do with potatoes. So when I was a, a kid growing up, sometimes I would complain about the food that my mother had made. And she would often say to me, Raymond, you didn't grow up during the Depression. And I would say, but mom, my generation has to survive disco music. So, you know, the comparison of generations, it's amazing that anyone would come out of my generation sane after listening to disco music. Comparisons. My kids are millennials. And so sometimes they'll talk to me about how difficult life is for their generation. And then I'll remind them of their great-great-grandfather. And then they don't want to talk about that too much. But anyways, it's so easy for us to compare, right? The questions of John's disciples are, John, who's getting more people? Who's getting the recognition? Is this fair? What does the future hold for you and for us if what is unfolding continues to unfold? John the Baptist, his response is going to be critical. You know, at his, during his time, during the time of Jesus, the successful, they were admired, they were honored as they are today. So, John, what's wrong with him? Hasn't he read a book like Your Best Life Now? Hasn't he read books on leadership like we have today? Uh, leadership, influence, elements of power and influence. How, how does John respond to, to what the disciples say to him. Well, his words are, are just packed with wisdom. Look at verse 27. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears and rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. So a critical question for us is, what enables John to say those words? What enables him to say that Jesus must increase and I must decrease? Jesus must become greater and I must become less. I think there's an interesting analogy from mountain climbing. David Brashears he was the first American to scale Mount Everest two times. And he is quoted as, as saying the following. Getting to the summit is the easy part. It's getting back down that's hard. Going up is easy. Coming down the mountain is hard. And I think that can be applied to many areas of life. Ambition in and of itself is not wrong. The question is one of motivation. What comes from the heart? You see, a self-centered ambition, it focuses on our own comfort, on our own recognition, our wealth, our power, our status. For the self-idolizing person, it's just normal to be envious of those that are succeeding more. It becomes natural for the self-idolizing person to, to become competitive and even will think that it's right to be competitive. They'll be embittered by circumstances. They'll wonder, you know, before God, God, why this lot in life? Why am I not as blessed as others? 
If you are ambitious, you may ask, well, isn't it right to develop our gifts, to, to expand our influence, and to, to accept promotions, to, to seize opportunities? Well, sure, of course. But it all depends on the motivation. Are we just promoting our own name, or are we actually living for God's glory? It's not that John is not ambitious. He just has a different ambition. Because deep within his soul, he knows some things. And the question, of course, is what does John the Baptist know? Verse 27, John says, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. So John the Baptist, he knows that everything in life is a gift from God. Every breath, every spiritual gift, every opportunity, every promotion, every relationship, it's a gift from the Father's sovereign hand. Paul asked the church in in Corinth, what do you have that God hasn't given you? Is there anything that you have that God hasn't given? given you, 1 Corinthians 4, 7. So John the Baptist, he knows that all gifts come from the Father's hand. All gifts come from the Father's hand. Verse 28, John understands that he was sent as a messenger. He was sent as a messenger to prepare the way for Jesus. That was his calling. That was his role. That was his identity, his entrustment. Envying Jesus at this point would nullify his calling. John was ambitious. He wanted people to come. He wanted people to repent. He wanted people to prepare for the Messiah. But he never thought that he should be Jesus. He never wanted to be more prominent. He never wanted to exceed his calling. He was content with his role. So John the Baptist, he knows his role, and he stays in his lane. He knows his role... And he stays in his lane. His lane. He doesn't try to be the Messiah. In verse 29, John uses a metaphor. He says that he's the friend of the bridegroom. In, in our language, he, he was the best man. So he was the one who made the arrangements for the wedding. But what gives the best man joy is to see the bridegroom and the bride united. One. That's what the bridegroom is there for. Or sorry, the best man is there for. There's only one that has the right to marry the bride. The bridegroom. This reference to the bridegroom, if a Jew had been hearing John the Baptist on that day, they immediately would have thought of God's people as the bride of the Messiah. The Apostle Paul, when in Ephesians, when he talks about Jesus and his bride, he says that Jesus, the bridegroom, loved the church and gave his life for her so that she might become pure. And only Jesus, the bridegroom, could do that. So John the Baptist knows that Jesus is in a league of his own. In fact, when he sees people going to Jesus, there's no sense of competition, of rivalry. Rather, he, he's filled with joy, surpassing joy. Literally, it says he rejoices with joy. Using the hockey analogy again, John the Baptist would be very happy to see Jesus playing center on the first line. And he just passing the puck to Jesus. If you look at the religious leaders, if you read through the Gospel of John, for example, chapter 5, again in chapter 12, the religious leaders, they do not want to see Jesus emerging, being the Messiah. They're afraid of losing their role, their status, their power over the Jewish people. 
And so they can't rejoice in what Jesus is doing. They, they have to remain at the center. Their identity is in their role, their position. And here's something I think very sobering for us. Whenever we put ourselves at the center of life, it's actually an act of rebellion, of unbelief. When we put ourselves at the center, we're saying that we are more important than Jesus. It's an act of unbelief, of not entrusting ourselves to him. It's an act of rebellion. John the Baptist, on the other hand, he knows where the joy is. He knows that the joy is not in him being the Messiah, him trying to be Jesus. He knows who he is. And he knows that Jesus is the Son of God. He's just a lamp. He's done his work. He's pointed to Jesus. And now the true light, Jesus, has come. And moving forward, Jesus must increase and he must decrease. This is actually a watershed moment. This is probably John's greatest moment. Are we willing to decrease? I think it's something that can be applied to us in many different areas of life. Are we willing to decrease? I think of a a university professor who is teaching in a Canadian university. He's now in his 90s. And you know that there are limited seats in any faculty. Why would someone in his 90s continue to hold his post at the university? I don't know, but why? Think about that. Why not pass things on to the next generation? I think of a a pastor in in a large church in his 80s. In order for him to pray during the worship service, he literally needs to be carried to the pulpit. And then he hangs on to the pulpit and tries to pray. Why would he continue to sit in his seat as lead pastor when there are others around him that are more than able to lead, gifted by God? Why do we hang on to things? What is it that makes us hang on to close our fists, to hold tightly to titles and roles and status? Do we hang on to our roles because we don't know where the joy is? Is it because we don't trust God's sovereign hand over our lives? Is it because we we actually don't know who we are in Jesus? Is it because we don't understand what we are to be living for? Do we think that our our life and our joy are, are actually grounded in our constructed identities, our constructed roles? In my, my short lifetime, I've had to pass on uh, roles, uh, ministries, responsibilities a number of times. And I have to say that it's not easy. And so when I preach from these These verses in Scripture don't look at me and think, oh, he thinks he knows how to do this. I I actually recognize how difficult it is. How difficult it is to see someone that you're working with actually uh, thriving and growing in ministry and, and see that person grow and see yourself as diminishing. Easy to say the words, he must increase, but I must decrease. Another thing to live it. I remember during one time of of transition when I was having a really hard time. And one of the songs that really spoke to me was a a Will Regan song. Will Regan and United Pursuit Band. They sing this simple lyric. Um, If I give it all to you, will you make it all new? 
If I open up my hands, will you fill them again? Why would we even ask that kind of question before the Lord? Because sometimes we think that the Lord is not sufficient to actually fill our hands again, right? We think that what we have right now is what is best for us, and so we hang on. And we're actually afraid to open our hands. Lord, if, you, if I give it all to you, will you make it all new? If, if I open up my hands, will you fill them again? And if we truly trust the Lord to be good, if we believe that our Father is good, we will open them and trust the Lord to bless us, to be good. The intermission decision today in this worship service is first to trust God's good, sovereign hand. Our Father is good. His love is steadfast. He is always faithful. Second, to recognize that our role, our work, our portion, it's always for a time, by God's grace. God puts things in our hands for a time to steward them well, but not to hang on to them. Third, your role in life, it's always for Jesus' glory, not your own. It's never, your role is never meant to establish your identity like, okay, this is now who I am, and so I must hang on. No. Our identity is in Jesus. Our success along the way is measured by our obedience to Jesus' calling. No matter what our role in life, no matter what our task, our, our, our success is measured by our obedience to Jesus. If there is some leadership, if there is influence and responsibility, and usually there is, it's a gift from God for a time. And if you know where your identity truly lies in Jesus, you can let go of that role. You can let go of that responsibility. Why? Because you trust the giver of all good gifts. If you think about the discipleship pathway that we've been talking about for a while, you know it talks about different phases of discipleship, explorer and and hiker and climber and guide. Well, this decision to allow others to increase while you decrease, it's often a decision that guides need to make. It's a decision that climbers need to make, to pass things on, open our hands. And then fourth, I first said first, you need to trust God's sovereign hands. Second, to recognize your role, that it's by God's grace for a time. Third, your role is always for Jesus' glory. And fourth, to decrease and allow others to increase with surpassing joy, you need to acknowledge again who Jesus is. And you might say, well then, remind me, who is Jesus? Well, look at what John's reflections, the Apostle John's reflections in verses 31 to 36. Here John says that those from the earth, like ourselves, are finite, are limited. John the Baptist was from the earth. He called people to repent. He called people to turn to Jesus, to the Messiah. He was sent by God, but he couldn't make people alive. He didn't have it to do that. He didn't have that authority. He could say, turn to Jesus, be ready for the Messiah, but he could not baptize people with the Holy Spirit. Jesus, on the other hand, he testified to what he had seen, what he had heard in heaven. And of course, he came baptizing people with the Spirit. 
John, the apostle, he knows that Jesus is from God, that he's completely unique, and he's above all. He's the only one from God. He, Jesus draws on his infinite knowledge of God's counsel. Other messengers throughout history, they had received anointing for their assignments, but no one had received the Spirit without measure, without limit. The Spirit in his fullness, only Jesus. John the Apostle, he knows that Jesus speaks the words of God, speaks truth. Later he'll write that what Jesus says, he just says what he hears the Father saying. He knows that to believe Jesus is to believe God because Jesus speaks the truth of God. Out of this relationship of love with Jesus, the Father, from his place of supreme authority, he gives all things into the hands of Jesus. Jesus has the universe in his hands, the scriptures say. Jesus, he had the plan of salvation entrusted to him. And so John the apostle, he knows that Jesus has all things in his hands, that he has all authority, and he, John, doesn't. We don't either. Chapter 21 of John Uh, Jesus is having this conversation with the apostle Peter about his role. And he's saying to Peter, hey, Peter, if you love me, you will shepherd my sheep. That's your calling. You are to feed my sheep. You are to care for my sheep. And then in that conversation, Jesus says this to Peter. When you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old... You'll stretch out your hands, and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Follow me. So Peter, now knowing how he will die, as he reflects on that, the fact that he will be crucified, he sees that the apostle John is is following. And he looks at Jesus and says, well, what about him? He compares himself with John. And it's interesting how you see this rivalry between the disciples now and then. And what's Jesus' response to Peter? Jesus replies, what is that to you? You follow me. That's a good word for all of us, right? What is that to you? You follow me. Because we so easily, like those first disciples, we'll compare our lot with the lot of someone else. We'll compare what God has given us with what God has given someone else. And we'll say to the Lord, well, okay, Lord, but what about them? And Jesus would say to us, what is that to you? You follow me. Trust me. Accept what the Father has given you. Jesus is saying to Peter, die to yourself, Peter, because what I've placed in your hands is actually really special. Don't miss it. Don't get distracted. Don't waste your time comparing yourself with John, worrying about what lies in the future of your fellow disciple, John. You see, in the intermission, we all need to make a really important decision. Every disciple begins making this important decision, and every day we need to continue to make this decision. Respond to what Jesus says in Mark 8, verse 34. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You make that decision to deny yourself, to die to yourself when you begin with Jesus, and you continue to make that decision every day. 
You recognize that Jesus has authority over all things. You recognize that the Father has entrusted all things to Jesus, that he is Lord, and that your calling is to die to yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. Trust him. That's the way of true purification. In verse 36, the last verse that Megan read, we have the climactic summary of the whole chapter. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, out of love, the Father sends Jesus, gives Jesus a -a one-of-a-kind role to save humanity. Through his life, Jesus identifies with us. Through his death, he pays for our sin. Through his resurrection, he triumphs over sin, over the evil one, over death. Does all of that so that our sins might be forgiven, so that our shame might be removed, so that our fears might be conquered, that we might experience salvation in its fullness. Jesus accomplishes everything. Done. All we need to do is trust him, believe in him, follow him. You see, when you believe in Jesus, you're made spiritually alive. You're born of the Spirit. And once that has happened for you, eternal life is a reality now and forever. 1 John 5.12 says, whoever has the Son has life. So if you have entrusted yourself to Jesus, surrendered to Jesus, you are spiritually alive now and forever. Those that, who do not entrust themselves to Jesus don't see life. Why? Because we're born spiritually dead, all of us. And all of us, at some moment in our lives, need to entrust ourselves to Jesus. Trust in him. Decide to follow him. If we reject Jesus according to the words of Scripture here, we see death. The wrath of God remains on us. Why? Because we decide not to follow Jesus. We decide to have nothing to do with him. So John the Apostle, he knows that Jesus offers the gift of God. He knows that Jesus alone has eternal life. And so instead of drawing attention to himself, he points to Jesus. If you're exploring and you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus, then you can make that intermission decision today. There's really only two alternatives in front of you. One is to decide to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior or decide to remain in darkness. You can decide to walk in light or in darkness. The decision is yours. Jesus invites you to come to him, to receive life in all its fullness. We receive that gift of eternal life when we surrender our lives completely to Jesus. Repent for sin and recognize that we can't save ourselves. If you've never decided to surrender your life to Jesus, I want to guide you in a prayer, and then I'm going to say a few words to all of us. The prayer will be on the screen behind me. And so if you've never made that decision, I ask you to join me in prayer. Jesus, thank you for the invitation to know you. 
Please forgive me for leading my own life separate from you. Thank you for dying on the cross and paying the price for all my sin. I repent and surrender my whole life to you. I turn to you for forgiveness, for new life. Remove my shame. Lord, thank you that in you you I can conquer my fears. Jesus, lead me from this day forward. Fill me with your spirit. Set me free. Make me into the kind of person you created me to be. I want to be like you. Father, thank you for adopting me into your family and gifting me with eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed that for the first time, then I'd encourage you to go to the welcome uh, area, to uh, go to the I Said Yes banner. We'd love to encourage you in your walk with Jesus. For those of us that have been following Jesus for some time, as I said earlier, the church service can be like an intermission moment, a moment to make some big decisions. When we leave here, the next period begins. And so how are you and I going to play? I pray that we would live completely surrendered to Jesus. Trusting God that every good gift comes from him and that he is able to fill our hands again as we open our hands. That as we die to ourselves that God is able to make all things new. I pray that we would live in such a way that it's obvious that our identity is actually grounded in Jesus, not in our roles, our titles. No, in Jesus. That we have found life, that God has, that we understand that God has placed things in our hands for his glory. He's done this in his goodness, in his timing. And that we would truly live for the glory of Jesus. And as we see others increasing, experiencing God's blessing, that we would celebrate. That we would be filled with joy. That we would make space for God to be God in our lives and the lives of others. Because the only one who is the way, the truth, and the life, the only one who can fill us with true joy is Jesus himself. Joy is found as we surrender all things into God's hands and recognize that the Father is truly the giver of every good gift. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer. So, Father, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you instruct us by your spirit as we read your word. We thank you, Lord, that you came to earth. Jesus, you identified with us. And you showed us the way to the Father. Lord, we recognize again that you are unique, that you are the only Son of God. Jesus, we recognize again that you have spoken the words of God and you continue to to reveal yourself to us. Thank you, Father, for placing all things in the hands of, of Jesus. And Lord, may we just live in such a way that we truly trust you in every area of our lives. You are the giver of every good gift and you entrust different roles to us, Lord, and I pray that we would embrace 
that which you've called us to do with joy, with conviction, with boldness. I pray that we wouldn't compare ourselves with one another, but that we would keep our eyes fixed on you and run the race that you've set before us. Lord, may we discover where the joy is. And as Paul writes, may the God of hope fill us with all joy and peace as we trust in you, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we may abound in hope. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving weekend.